Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. For the past 20 years, North Carolina residents have been fortunate to have Democracy North Carolina in the state. The contributions made by DEMNC during those years have been enormous and eventful. Under the past leadership of Bob Hall, DMNC has challenged elected officials in the state to ensure that our voting system and laws have been supportive of the notion of promoting and protecting a more democratic state and country. Since 2018, DMNC has been led by attorney Tomas Lopez, who has ably replaced Bob Hall as the director and has been able to expand upon the successes of this organization. For the few of you who do not know, DMNC is a nonpartisan organization that is focused on the promotion and protection of an expanding democratic process. This work includes research, organizing, and advocacy, which is designed to increase the participation by voters in order to ensure that our local, state, and federal governments live up to its promise of being of the people, for the people, and by the people. A, a review of the recent voter participation statistics affirmed the conclusion that DEMNC has lived up to this lofty goal. And now we're gonna to lose Tomas Lopez as the leader of this vital organization. What's in store for us now is the focus of our discussion this evening. Our guest, of course, is uh, Tomas Lopez. And we thank you for your service and uh, thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for that very kind introduction um, and uh, you know, looking forward to the conversation. Okay, I thought you were going to say you, you're looking forward to leaving. <laughs> well, I still have a few more months before that happens. So, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm still I'm still here. Okay, well, let, let, let me start us off by just uh, congratulating you on the many great contributions that you've made to our state as you have uh, continued and expanded upon the uh, work that uh, Bob, Bob Hall started. Uh, and, of course, he's still continuing uh, those efforts in support of uh, the uh, the efforts of uh, DMNC. Uh, we're going to miss you no, and well. um, pray that your future will be as bright and productive as uh, has been your past. Well, I, I'm grateful for that. Uh, and, I, and I'm grateful for the chance to have been here these last couple of years. You know, I think the thing that I would add to, you know, all the stuff you mentioned about the work that Democracy North Carolina has done, you know, over the long course of its history is that, you know, it's been embedded in this really strong community statewide, right, that involves local civic organizations, informal collections of people, 
other statewide organizations that are working to uh, you know, achieve a more just and equitable state, right? I think about groups like the North Carolina NAACP. I think about groups that are, you know, involved in the faith community. I think about groups that work with our, our Latino Latinx community. And, you know, our organization, um, you know, has a footprint. There's a role that we play and we're part of a much bigger picture that was to be very honest, part of what made coming here so appealing. North Carolina's got real strength in terms of building, uh, building for the long term a really promising future. Well, well, in in, in light of of those comments, uh, which I think are very very accurate, uh, can you just kind of explain to our audience uh, why you're leaving and well, uh, where sure. you're going? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm leaving for personal reasons. Um, you know, my significant other is a physician and she's beginning her medical residency. So we're moving out of state for that. Uh, and uh, the way that whole thing works is you get told where you go. And so we are <laughs> we are going where we've been told to go. Um, so uh, we're taking our talents to the city of Pittsburgh and uh, we're gonna call it home. Um, but uh, that will be, you know, that'll be, I'm gonna get very used to that over the next few years. I, you know, my, my focus for now is on, you know, making sure, you know, both organizationally, right, that Democracy North Carolina keeps doing everything it needs to be doing, and, you know, that we're supporting all the work that's happening statewide. Right. Well, you know, being a, uh, a New York boy, uh, leaving from that kind of metropolis uh, area, uh, having gone through uh, Duke, Yes. Uh, law school and uh, back to New York with the Brennan uh, Center. Uh, Pittsburgh is going to be a, uh, a a big change. It'll be a change. Uh, yeah, you. I mean, I, I came here. I did my undergrad at Duke, and so spent. Um, you know, came here for college. Went back to the Northeast. Spent law school out there. Moved out. I spent some time out west, uh, and I've lived in the Deep South as well. And um, you know, there were my, my travels have taken me a few different places. Um, but I think what is, you know, really interesting about, uh, you know, where I'm going next is, you know, obviously the things that make it different, but the things that make it really similar, right? When I look at the work that we've done at Democracy North Carolina, the challenges that we face, and I look about, you know, where we're going to Pittsburgh, this is the state of Pennsylvania, I see a place that, you know, has some, some parallels to North Carolina, you know, some very distinct differences, right? But you talk about, uh, diverse political geography. You talk about uh, a place with, um, you know, partisan dynamics that have been uh, challenging and have intersected with the questions of uh, gerrymandering, voting access, high profiles in, you know, competitive national elections. Um, One of, I think it's important for people listening and who are thinking about, you know, what is the, what is the, future hole for North Carolina to realize, you know, A, what happens here, you know, affects people's lives here. And there are really important connections to a broader American story that's playing out in a number of different places. Well, let me, you know, kind of run you into them and see an organizations that has made a lot of significant contributions uh, to this uh, state. But kind of looking back to, uh, I guess, January 2018, uh, when you uh, when you took over, 
how did you then define your role and expectations uh, uh, as you uh, replace uh, Bob Hall as the, uh, the, the executive director? Yeah, I, I think I thought about it along along two dimensions, right? One, one, and, and you know, one is you know kind of a strictly sort of internal organizational one, right? That probably is, you know, of, of less immediate interest to folks that are listening, right? But that there are kind of a set of challenges that that come into any nonprofit organization, really any any org, including actually any sort of commercial enterprise too, in which you know, you're succeeding a founder and there are a unique set of challenges attached to that. And so I often looked at my role, not so much as to replace Bob, because I knew that was impossible, but to, um, but to do what I could to continue advancing the organization's work with, you know, the abilities and perspective that I had, you know, that's, that was one half of it, right? And there was sort of a whole piece of, you know, ensuring, you know, that the organization was set up in a way to sustain its work moving forward because we knew that the work that we were trying to accomplish was really long-term work. You know, we get really zoomed in on every election, but you know, the question of how strong our democracy is, is gonna, is a perpetual one. And I think what we've learned over the last few years is that, you know, it needs consistent vigilance. And that really goes to, you know, the, the external side of, of what the last few years have been that, you know, when, when I was fortunate to begin this job in, January of 2018, it was at the end of, it was in the latter part of, of what had been a really challenging decade for structural democracy in this state, for voting access, for uh, representation, right? We'd gone through this cycle of gerrymandering over and over and over again. We'd seen uh, legislative attempts at restricting voting access over and over and over again. And yet what gets lost in that is that in fact, there have been successful attempts that uh, you know, folks here have, have been involved with to push back effectively, right? That the 2013 voter suppression law was thrown out in court. That, you know, the, the initial 2011 gerrymander was, in fact, had to get redrawn several times. And so uh, one thing that was on my mind in that moment was, was feeling like, hey, we are in the middle of something here but we also have to be preparing for not just continuing to push back, but hopefully, you know, being able to articulate what do we want, you know, in a really affirmative way, right? We, you know, we're able to say, hey, you know, things like strict photo ID are really bad, right? Things like partisan and racial gerrymandering are really bad, but to begin articulating the alternative um, so that, you know, our work is seen not just through the lens of what we're not, and not just through the lens of, well, people from this party want this and people from that party want that, but what is actually the best thing for people living in communities across the state? You know, what is gonna, what is gonna give people uh, the, the stake in the decisions that affect their outcomes? And that's really, what, that's really what drives the work at a, you know, at kind of a more baseline level. And Tomas, as you were describing your thoughts about the organization, I, what came to my mind was, I mean, that's a lot of work and, and a lot of responsibility. Why were you interested in the position and what, how did your past experiences and, and uh, jobs prepare you to take the helm of democracy in C? Yeah, I, um, 
you know, I think it was a mix of the personal and professional, right? I, I think on a, on a personal level, um, you know, I, you know, I was born and raised in the Bronx, New York, um, lived there till I was 18, went to college here at Duke, um, which, you know, is not the same thing as living in Durham, North Carolina proper, right? Not the same thing as, you know, living in any, any city or town in the state, right? And I acknowledge that. And, and I knew that when I showed up for college here, right? I mean, I wasn't so closed off to the world. I mean, it, it wasn't the same thing as the Bronx, but I also knew it wasn't wasn't the same thing as what was outside the walls of the campus. Um, but, you know, I was, I'm a first generation college graduate. Uh, I'm a first generation, you know, uh, sort of, you know, first generation with any kind of professional degree. And I, you know, without going, you know, <laughs> to all the details of my biography, right. I, I benefited from opportunities that targeted people with backgrounds like mine, both, you know, economic backgrounds like mine and uh, ethnic, ethnic and racial backgrounds like mine as a, you know, as a, somebody whose parents were born in Puerto Rico and raised both here in the, in the U.S. mainland and on the island. And I wanted to pay that forward. I was attracted to the law and I began my career as an immigrants rights lawyer, um, working first in the Southwest and then in the Deep South. And my pathway into voting rights work was through, you know, a, a not particularly original recognition that many of the people that were interested in attacking immigrant communities, um, you know, that were the communities that I was working in, were, this, were many of the literally same people who were interested in making voting more difficult. And that they viewed this, you know, they viewed these efforts as, uh, you know, as, as two pieces of a bigger story. And, you know, I, I came to understand um, the importance of, of the vote, not in a more than abstract way, you know, with the impact of the Shelby County decision in 2013, right? This was the Supreme Court decision that uh, undid a lot of the protections that existed in the Voting Rights Act of 1965 as originally written and implemented. Um, the that's what led me to work at the Brennan Center for Justice um, from 2013 to 17. My work was nationally focused, also a lot of state level work. And I was, uh, you know, I think what I found compelling about the opportunity um, at Democracy North Carolina, right, was the, was the merging of, of place and organization. North Carolina was a place that had, that had been at that point at the center of the national the national debate over the meaning of the right to vote and you know the impact of that supreme court decision in 2013 and right due to things like moral monday due to you know effective organizing that was happening across the state the response to that um, and what i saw in democracy north carolina was a place that had a reputation uh in in its field right it was a group that i was already familiar with from my work uh, at the national level. And, um, you know, I was just really excited about, you know, about the promise of, you know, getting to, um, getting to be a part of the work in this particular place, you know, at a place too, right? I think if, if folks are listening and, you know, you're sort of long time engaged in the community, you might well know Democracy North Carolina is, you know, through, you know, the outstanding leadership that Bob you know, that Bob Hall guided the organization through for many years. 
And yet by the time I came on in 2018, we had 16 full-time staff. Um, you know, so it was, you know, it, it, it had grown, he had grown it, um, you know, to be more than even the single person it was identified with. And, you know, today we have 24 permanent staff. And so, you know, there is, and, and, I, and I acknowledge, right, there are challenges and responsibilities that come from being, um, being that big. It means you have to be sensitive to uh, the way you hold space, sensitive to the needs of, and the, and the priorities of, um, of partners, especially at the local level. But I, those are all things I found really, really appealing. This is the uh, Legal Eagle Review, and uh, we're talking with uh, Tomas Lopez, who is the uh, departing director of uh, Democracy North Carolina. Uh, we're going to uh, continue uh, this discussion after we take a uh, quick break. Want you to uh, stay with us, and we'll be right back. I'm Nastasia Harris, a third-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Virtual Justice Spotlight. Inequities in the criminal justice system have been well documented. The causes of disparities in the criminal justice system are overwhelmingly blamed on overt racism and systemic institutional racism. However, little focus is placed on the role that implicit bias plays in furthering those disparities. Implicit biases are associations made by individuals towards people in the unconscious state of mind. Research has shown that people hold implicit biases even in the absence of reasonable belief, simply by paying attention to the social world around them. As with all types of bias, implicit bias can distort one's perception and subsequent treatment either in favor of or against a given person or group. As a result, these biases manifest in stop and frisk, over-policing of black and brown communities, the bail system, jury selection, fact-finding related to discriminatory practices, sentencing, and every other aspect of the justice system. Discussions of implicit bias tend to focus on race. However, implicit bias can be expressed in relation to non-racial factors, including gender, age, religion, or sexual orientation. Public confidence in the criminal justice system is a cornerstone of the rule of law and a facilitator of public safety. Therefore, reducing the influence of implicit biases is vitally important to the prevention of the harmful effects of those biases. Virtual justice at NCCU School of Law is the intersection of technology and the legal clinical program. I'm Nastasha Harris. Thanks for listening. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you uh, so very much for staying with us as we continue our conversation with uh, Tomas Lopez, who is the uh, director of uh, Democracy uh, North Carolina. And unfortunately, uh, we're going to uh, lose his leadership uh, here in the uh, state. Uh, but uh, I'm sure that we're not losing his leadership here in the, uh, in the movement. Uh, which is really uh, larger than uh, the North Carolina. 
but you know, you 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 were talking about uh, you know some of the barriers, some of the goals, some of your observations as you moved into uh, this uh, job with uh, Democracy uh, North Carolina as its leader. But for our audience, uh, can you kind of expand on this notion of uh, uh, the promise of uh, for the people, of the people, and by the people? Yeah. And, and what, what does that mean within the uh, pursuit of a um, more democratic state, a more democratic country? So the question, the question you're asking here is one that I've had to think more and more about the longer I've been here. Because when I came into the role, my professional background was in particular, the, the immediately preceding years was as a voting rights attorney. And that involved litigating cases involving access to the right to vote, which basically involved, you know, these kind of technical statutes and regulations that affects, you know, what it, you know, what's required in order to cast a ballot, what's required for that ballot to count, uh, and is it a sort of set of related circumstances, and then sometimes policies related to that. And in being here, uh, and being exposed to uh, both being at an organization, but being exposed to kind of a, a wider movement, right, that is involved in not just using the law, and I know, look, we're on the legal, legal review, and we're talking about the law in a lot of ways, right, but is doing grassroots organizing, that is doing public education. You know, I, you know a lot of people, you know, see the word democracy and they attach a meaning to it. And one of the challenges of our of the time of my time here, you know, and I think of the last few years generally, not just here in North Carolina, but you know, I think in the in the country at large, right, is that there is, um, you know, I think there's a set of folks who, for a long time, have had positive associations with the word democracy, at least as an ideal, right? That is this ideal that says, you know, if you're part of the community. You have a say in what the community does and what happens in that community, right? If you boil, if you take away all the sort of stuff about, you know, here's how a bill becomes a law, and this is what the courts do, and this is what a jury does, and why it's important. And like, you strip it all away, right? It's about making that, you know, you have a seat at the table, and that you deserve a seat at the table because, uh, you know, everybody has some inherent worth. That you know, there is kind of a baseline dignity that that everyone is accorded. And that the part of the, the validation of that dignity is being able to have your voice count as much as anyone else's. That it doesn't matter that, it, you know, the ideal, right, is that it doesn't matter, you know, where you're from, how you grew up, what kind of resources you have, that everybody's, everybody has that equal worth as a person such that they get an equal say in the outcome. And then, of course, you start adding on all the ways in which it takes to make a system work and in which our system has developed. And we don't have that ideal. And where we've ended up is a place where the, you know, I don't presume any longer that when I talk about, well, this is good for our democracy, that somebody listening to that automatically says, well, if it's not good for democracy, it's not good for me, right? Those things have become separated and they've become separated for different groups of people in different ways, right? We've got one, we've got at least one set of people who see the word democracy 
and say, well, I don't understand why people who disagree with me should have a say, right? We've got a set of people, we've got a, a, a you know, big lie about the 2020 election, for example, right? That, that sort of, that is, um, you know, attendant, attached to the idea that, well, you know, as long as they get my way, it doesn't really matter how we got there. It doesn't really matter, you know, how it affects someone else, right? You know, what is, you know, democracy is, is whatever works for me. But on the flip side, you also have people who have been told for decades, including by groups like Democracy North Carolina, go out and vote. Go out and vote like your life depends on it because people died for the right to vote, because people, because without voting, you know, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu and without voting, you don't have a voice. And they feel like they did that and they didn't see the results of it. Because they say, my station in life isn't that different. They say, you know, my community isn't really any better off. And that's the group that I think is especially, you know, important for us to reach, to be able to say, okay, maybe, you know, government in particular hasn't delivered, but we got to make the case about, here's why democracy, done the way we want it to be done, can make a difference in your life, in your family's life, in your community's life, and it's going to be better for all of us. I'm sorry, go ahead. So Tomas is, you know, the Democracy North Carolina is a nonpartisan organization. And as you were describing different views, of course, we're an an incredibly polarized country right now. Uh, And when we talk about this big lie in terms of the 2020 election, there's one political party that is that is promoting that. How do you balance the the need for nonpartisanship um, while you are making arguments about, about democracy that might seem to some to in fact be partisan? Yeah. So I, 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 would, I would take this question in two parts, right? The first is about what it means to be nonpartisan. Uh, so when democracy, when I, you know, we come out and we say democracy in North Carolina is a nonpartisan organization, not affiliated with any political party or candidate, what it means, right, is that we're not an arm of any political party, despite, you know, us sharing a lot of letters with uh, the Democratic Party, right? We, you know, we, we don't have any money from the Democratic Party. We have no organizational relationship with the Democratic Party. They're doing their thing. We're doing our thing. We're not in touch. Second is that we have a legal obligation to do all of that, you know, because an organization like ours, you know, has certain obligations to, uh, you know, stay out of, um, stay out of things like that. You know, there's a longer, more complicated sort of discourse I could get into about what all that involves, right? But that's, you know, but that's the nut of it. Um, But the other piece of being nonpartisan that that is important is, you know, to be able to say, look, we're not for institutions, we're for people, right? And what we try to say, right, by walking that line is to be able to say, yes, you know, you may be hearing us from certain people. You may be hearing the big lie from certain people and they may all be coming from, you know, one side of the political aisle, at least at this given moment. Um, But let me tell you about a bigger picture story that doesn't have to do necessarily with you know a single political party or two political parties 
or one elected official, but the way in which it all comes together to affect you. And so I think the way we try to, the way we try to approach it is to approach the question of, of particular, right? We talk about structural democracy, right? Voting rights, redistricting, the role of money in politics. And then democracy as a culture, right? What it means to sort of be engaged at the community level in a way that is uh, effective and authentic, right? In, in terms of what it means for somebody who's carrying it out and is practicing it. Um, you know, so we, you know, we make sure to A, follow those, you know, those legal lines, right? But even when we're just talking about this stuff, we are really trying to say, look, when we talk about democracy, we are talking about what is good for setting up a system that works for everyone, a political process, like we say, that works for all. But 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 in, in doing that, though, is that achieved merely by, by voting or is democracy a larger concept than just going to the polls on November 2nd or November 3rd to, uh, to cast a vote? It's definitely the latter. You know, our organization has subject matter expertise in how elections work. And, um, you know, oftentimes we are asked and, and we, are, we are sort of proud to, right, weigh in on things like legislation affecting election laws, right? Because that affects people's ability to exercise that vote. And the vote is the building block of lowercase d democratic participation, because it is often an entry point uh, into people's engagement with, with their community, but it doesn't end there, right? We have political protest. We have people lobbying their officials. We have organizing that seeks to influence outcomes through mechanisms that don't involve elections or legislative bodies or even administrative bodies. So all of those things count as democracy, especially in, in, in the bigger sets, right? I, I think, you know, I think for us, we view voting as, you know, the most concrete um, and high profile way that people can be a part of the political process, but by no means the only way. And so from your perspective, what were some of the major successes of, uh, of twin, not just, or since 2018. So yeah, from the time that you joined the organization as ED uh, up until now. So if we look at the last three and a half years of, you know, sort of lowercase d democracy in North Carolina, right? What we've had is continued attempts to make voting more difficult, to attack representation, um, and also continued responses. And, you know, we've been a part of those responses. Uh, there was an effort, listeners will recall in 2018, to push a number of constitutional amendments that would have um, had a negative impact on our democracy. Um, you know, that included um, language that would have reworked our state board of elections to take it out of the hands of the people that currently control it, language that would have affected the way judges are chosen, and unfortunately, one that passed, you know, that requires photo voter ID in our constitution. But pushing back those things that we did was a win, right? That was important when I think about that first year. A second thing 
is I think about the ways in which we have been able to, um, you know, and when I say we, I mean, you know, frankly, not just democracy in North Carolina, but all the really good organizations and, and, and people we work with, right? I, I mentioned, you know, earlier, right, groups like the North Carolina NAACP, right? I think about groups like, like Common Cause and the Southern Coalition for Social Justice and Forward Justice and, you know, the, the, the advocates and, and lawyers and community leaders who are, um, you know, Advanced Carolina, the Black Alliance, um, who are um, doing the work every day, right, to do things like uh, fight for legislation in 2019 that won back the most popular day of early voting, which is the most popular way people vote in North Carolina. And I think about how in 2020, in the face of a pandemic, there were significant changes and, and, and credit where it's due, right? You know, we spent a lot of the last few years really longer term before I got here, right? You know, being highly critical of the North Carolina General Assembly. And in a bill that, you know, in other ways we were highly critical of, to be clear, last year there was language that changed the rules for the 2020 election or an absentee balloting that made it more accessible and flexible to be a poll worker, that moved up the deadline for um, counting absent, moved up the point at which um, counties could begin counting absentee ballots. And those were all things that, you know, on their own may not sound like a big deal, but were actually really important contributions to the 75% turnout that we had in 2020. We had, um, we were part of a lawsuit with some other organizations that um, was able to win a cure process or absentee ballot since 2020. So somebody cast an absentee ballot, they had some kind of issue with it that made it not count. In a lot of circumstances, they had those folks that needed to be provided an opportunity to correct that ballot before it was tossed. We had, you know, in less than a year ago, a really fragile situation involving, you know, the, the, the literal gears of our democracy. And, um, you know, I, I think that the, the public response was really, you know, was effective in terms of getting rules changed and being able to, uh, you know, lower the barriers to voting and then help people get over the barriers that remained. You know, we ran a, you know, we, we were, you know, we're lead partners in an election protection program that took calls from nearly 15,000 voters last fall, right? Those are folks who had needs ranging from where's my polling place to they just asked me for ID to there is somebody intimidating standing outside this polling site. And, you know, that is direct assistance that, that you know, that that's able to be provided. So I think, you know, in the midst of all of, all of this, right, we've been able to, um, you know, we've been able to respond to a really fluid environment and, you know, what I think has been an effective way. I mean, I could, I, you know, I have plenty of critiques about oh, if we could have done this, we could have done that. But I feel really good over the fact that, you know, we have, um, we've gotten wins for voters. Um, but I, I, I don't think about it as like, you know, well, this is democracy North Carolina's work, right? It's voters have gotten wins for themselves. And, you know, we've been, you know, we've been really helpful in, you know, making that happen through the, you know, through the interventions we make, right? But, you know, when we tell people, hey, tell your lawmaker, that's not us telling the lawmaker, that's thousands of people telling their lawmaker, right? When we, when we say, hey, you know, we want to protect the polls, that's not me standing outside of hundreds of polling places, right? That's 
people giving their time to do that. And um, so, you know, I, I, as challenging as it is, right, it, it is, it's hard for me to separate, you know, I don't want to make it an organizational story so much as it's one about the story, what, what's been the case in North Carolina these last two years, which is that, you know, at the end of a long decade, people kept fighting and people started looking forward too. And I think that that's a really, you know, I think that's a really important story to tell. We, uh, you, you, you talked about uh, the growth of your staff yeah. from uh, 16 to uh, 24 now. Uh, did, did that result from resistance to the work that you were doing or from opportunities which your work uh, prevent, presented uh, in terms of expanding uh, the reach of the, uh, of the organization? So I, I would again answer that question in two ways, right? One is the one wearing the internal hat and the other the one is thinking about, you know, what, what is needed in North Carolina, right? Wearing my internal hat, one of the things that, that uh, I think all of us in the organization recognize relatively early on is that, you know, folks who are listening, you know, may have some familiarity with, you know, the, the nonprofit sector and know that it, you know, it is often chronically understaffed. It is often, you know, chronically, you know, sort of fighting for resources. There are challenging dynamics, you know, in terms of the ways in which, um, you know, organizations in the nonprofit sector, um, you know, sometimes end up having to compete for the same money, such that there, there's, a, there's a thing that um, people in the space refer to as the nonprofit industrial complex. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just from the organizational perspective, there was some sense of to do everything that we want to do and do it well, right, we need more capacity in the organization to be able to do that. And at the work of an organization like ours, you know, we've been talking for, you know, a while now just, you know, about the right to vote and legislative advocacy and grassroots organizing. And yet, you know, it also takes human resources. It takes staff to raise the money. You know, it takes somebody to, you know, keep the books, uh, you know, make sure that the, the finances work. And so that has been a, a piece of that as well. And then externally, I mean, we've been talking about it, right? The, the threats have not gone away. And I continue to think that the opportunities, uh, you know, are both are both visible and still approaching. And you know, to be prepared to, uh, you know, sort of actualize what we want, you know, we think we needed more people to do it. But the truth is that the the needs that exist, um, you know, for uh, for talented people to have a space. Um, to help facilitate the, the work of the public get involved in democracy, that's, um, you know, that, that, that's an issue not just with democracy in North Carolina, but, you know, in the state and in many ways the country as a whole. All right. You are listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we have been talking this hour with Tomas Lopez, who is the current director of Democracy North Carolina, Uh, We're going to have to take a quick break, but we will be right back. We hope you stay with us. Good evening. My name is Reginald Woods II, and I am a current 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And I would like to personally thank you for supporting and listening to the Legal Eagle Review. 
an informative and thought-provoking show that is made possible by the Virtual Justice Project of the North Carolina Central University School of Law, as well as listeners like yourself. For more information regarding the show, or past episodes, or the latest happenings surrounding our host, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Legal Eagle Review. Again, my name is Reginald Wist II, and thank you for listening. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with Tomas Lopez, who is the current but soon to be outgoing director of Democracy North Carolina. So Tomas, it's been really insightful getting your, your thoughts and perspectives from the, the three and a half years in which you were the, uh, the executive director of Democracy NC. And you were at that point where we need to get your thoughts on where we should go in the future, like where we are right now. So as uh, Irv mentioned, even though we're not going to have um, your leadership here in North Carolina, or at least not directly, we, we have your number, we know where to find you. Uh, you will no doubt continue to provide us with insight, even as you are in Pennsylvania. But you've learned a lot about the state. You've learned a lot about the hard work that has gone on in the state and has and have been a part of that work in making sure that our democracy uh, becomes more robust. So as you reflect on where we are in this state and, and what we need to do to ensure that uh, voting continues to be more accessible. What are your thoughts about where we need to go from here? So one of the things, one of the things I mentioned earlier in our conversation this hour was how I came into this organization and my work here with the professional background as a voting rights lawyer. And that the basic tools that I understood to, you know, that I had my professional experience working with were you know, litigation and, and, you know, a certain kind of legislative or administrative advocacy. And I had some exposure organizing, but I wouldn't call it deep exposure. The other thing that I came in with, as a, with my background as a voting rights lawyer, was an understanding of, um, you know, an understanding of my work, you know, as connected strictly to the question of the vote. And yet, you know, per Professor Joyner's question from a little earlier in the hour, the, you know, that, that question of what is democracy is something that's a lot bigger. Um, and, you know, the great, I think one of the opportunities we have moving forward is that, you know, there is, especially in light of the 2020 election, there is, I think, an increased recognition of the relevance of the vote and sort of the rules around voting and voting rights to all kinds of other things that really matter to people. Such that when we talk about democracy, you know, we can't necessarily just talk about, um, you know, strictly access to the ballot. You know, how can we expect somebody to have access to the ballot if they don't feel safe in their community? 
how can we expect to somebody to, you know, exercise access to the ballot if they can't get food on the table? And, you know, I think one of the powerful ideas that does exist now, you know, at least among people in movement spaces, and I think is gaining currency outside of those movement spaces, is this idea of democracy as an inclusive idea that captures not only the structures uh, that have been, you know, that and that are kind of the focus of groups like Democracy North Carolina, which, you know, need attention, right? But also all the things that are necessary for those structures to be used effectively over the long term to achieve the kind of broader outcomes in the society that we're trying to build. And so I think part of the work moving forward is to have that conversation at a wider scale about what democracy means and what it would look like to practice it in the process of achieving it, right? Which is a little bit of a brain teaser, but I think that some of the, some of the work that all of us have to do, it goes back to this idea, right? That we're, um, goes back to this idea that the people don't there, I think there are plenty of folks that don't look at, that look at democracy and say, Hey, that's not doing anything for me. Right. That, that some of the idea has some of the, some of what has to get us there is getting that buy-in, not just on democracy itself, but, our, but in our belief that we can actually do something about it. Well, you, you mentioned earlier that, uh, that, the, the, the voter turnout uh, had uh, in North Carolina increased to roughly 75%, yeah. uh, which is a, a major uh, accomplishment. But in light of the uh, political schism, which exists right now in the country, where you have uh, an extreme right wing, and then you have a redefined moderate uh, political sector that people are referring to as the left, uh, will the people come back out uh, now uh, after 2020 when there was so much uh, disgust and anguish about where the country uh, was going? And uh, so what is going to keep that momentum percolating to the extent uh, that that increase uh, participation will continue in the uh, in the coming years. You've hit on in that you've hit on in that question one of the paradoxes of the last year that I don't have a good answer to, which is there is across political identification a a, 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 share, a shared sense, even if again for different reasons, that our democracy isn't working, that something is not right, and yet either in spite of or because of that, we had tremendous turnout in this most recent election. And I think there are a couple implications to that. One is that uh, turnout is a deeply important, is a really important measure um, in terms of the health of our democracy, but it can't be the only measure, right? None of us, none of us are sitting here saying, well, our democracy is working well, just, you know, purely on the fact that everyone's getting a chance to participate. I think a second thing that comes from that is that we have, um, you know, that, that when we are, um, 
and you can tell this is, you know, very much my first draft of reflecting on all of this because, you know, <laughs> sort of, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to sort of think aloud here and, and really, and really process it, but that you have, um, you have moving forward, right? What I don't know about the, about the next few years is whether, you know, in future elections, participation is going to be tied to what felt, I think, for many voters, again, across the political spectrum, felt like apocalyptic stakes. That um, in 2020, you know, it, it really, and, and I think the pandemic contributed to this as well um, in, in um, you know, maybe in some counterintuitive ways that it felt like this is extremely important and that if it doesn't, you know, and that, that people were convinced that if it didn't go right, it, it could really, you know, go in a, a difficult way, uh, you know, however people viewed, you know, right. And what one of the, one of the challenges we have is how do we get people to care and how do we make sure that we don't end up in apocalyptic stakes again? Right. Cause that, 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 I don't think any of us feel like that's a way to live. Um, and right. Not getting to those apocalyptic stakes again, you know, part of the answer has to be having a democracy that is responsive to people's needs. Right. That's why that's the work of, you know, of, you know, government now over the next few years, right. Federal state, local, right. We talk about, you know, one thing we, you know, we've only alluded to, right, but we haven't, you know, we, we haven't gone in depth on, right, is, uh, you know, is what it means, you know, you can't talk about democracy in North Carolina or at the, or at the national level without talking about racial justice. You can't talk about racial justice without talking about what we, you know, what we see over and over again in terms of violence inflicted on on black and brown bodies, uh, which is, I realize, a very movement way to say people getting killed by 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 police, um, and um, and 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 what that means for people's relationship to their community as a whole. Um, you know, I'm not I, I'm not speaking here as a criminal justice expert, right? There are plenty of people who you can have on who can go in depth into that stuff, but I raise it because when you talk about the reasons why people are involved, why people care, right? That's part of the thing that's in the mix. That, and and that, that people, um, there are a lot of things that people care about that people wanna see results on. And that's both motivating participation, but in its own way can also depress participation as well. And participation being not just voting, but again, right? lobbying, protest, you know, all the other, all the other, you know, kind of forms of engagement that we've got. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Tomas, I, I really appreciate you um, kind of broadening the whole notion of democracy, because I think that to your point about, you know, people are told you need to get out and vote and then they get out and vote and maybe even the candidate that they were, you know, encouraged to vote for actually wins, but then nothing changes within their community. And so, in, in thinking about democracy and thinking about, um, you know, the right to vote, it, it's got to be much more expansive. And, and having a focus just on, you know, casting a ballot is ignoring 
also why so many people may not be able to vote. So as you noted, you know, if people don't feel safe in their community, they may not get out. If people um, don't have enough food, if, if when we're talking about the criminal justice system, you know, what's the percentage of folks who vote when it's a single-headed household, when someone is trying to hold down two and three jobs, right? How do you make it to the polls so that the discussion about voting and democracy is so much broader and wider than just, you know, going to the polls. So I, I appreciate um, you sharing that perspective and that insight. And so as we're thinking about uh, how to engage the community, right? Um, I know Democracy NC has an education component. So I think part of it is not just educating those who we want to encourage to be involved in the political process more robustly, but also educating those who are in the movement who don't think about voting and democracy in the way that you've described. Can you talk a little bit about the education component of Democracy NC? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that you know, our organization tries to do is to uh, bring people into the political process. And you know, what that, that means is a couple of things, right? In an election, we're helping to get out the vote. But between elections, what it means is trying to get people engaged even beyond voting, right? To get people to understand, hey, here is how your local government works. Here's the way, you know, we think about it in the, in the sort of election policy context, right? Here's how your local board of elections works and how you can get involved in this. And, and so we're doing, you know, some of this higher level education, right, to try to turn voters into advocates and advocates into leaders. But then especially in an election cycle, you know, we want to make sure too that, you know, even if you haven't even just had the time to be a voter, let alone an advocate or a leader, that you know, hey, this is where I got to go. This is what I need to bring with me. And this is why, and, and, and these are, you know, and these are the things that, um, you know, your vote affects, even if we're, you know, not in the position to say here, so you should vote, but understand, you know, here's how, you know, here's how all this connects up. And so um, that education kind of has two branches to it, right? One is, you know, sort of the mass education saying, hey, don't, you know, here's how the election works. You want to get good information in your hands because we know you're getting a lot of things thrown your way, especially where there's so much either misinformation or even intentional disinformation in the context of an election. But then between elections, to be able to say, okay, you voted, what, what can we do with you more now? Are you doing more now? What can we do with you that's even more? And that's the work of organizing, right? We've, you know, on our staff, we've got community organizers who are based in five different regions in North Carolina. So I live in the triangle, but we've got organizing staff based in Charlotte, in Western North Carolina, in the triad, in Eastern North Carolina, and in Southeastern North Carolina. And that is, and that is where, you know, that, that work is really happening, right? To, to, um, because bringing people into the political process means both putting people in a position to vote, but also, you know, hopefully, um, you know, effectively leveraging and leveling up those people who are already bought into the idea of taking part in the process. And so when we talk about um, organizing, right? So um, after the election, we can take a breath, <laughs> but there's still work that needs to be done. And so what advice would you give to folks who may not 
be currently involved in this type of work who who are inspired, motivated by the work of you and the NAACP and Forward Justice and the many organizations that we have here in North Carolina that are committed to this fight um, and organizations throughout the nation. What advice would you give to someone who's interested in becoming involved with Democracy NC or with uh, other organizations? I think one of the best things that, that, that somebody can do is to find out what's active in their community. And so it might be, you mentioned, right, a local NAACP branch in the county that they're already living in. It might be Democracy North Carolina having a local meeting where they live, depending again, if, if you know, we've got, you know, we've got a, a presence in that particular place. And it's about figuring out, you know, both, you know, what's your entry point, but also like, what do you find interesting, right? I realize, you know, voting, you know, we just talked about democracy in this very inclusive way, but I recognize, right, our organization's bread and butter, rightfully so, right, is the right to vote, access to the ballot, representation, money and politics. That might not be the thing, even if you find that important, it might not be the thing that you want to spend your time working on. You know, it might be the state of the schools in your community. So finding out who's working on the schools. Right. It might be environmental justice. Okay. Who's working on environmental justice in your community and, and, and finding, finding that in that's going to keep you excited, interested, and curious. All right. That's great advice. And we're going to have to end it there because we're out of time, but we would like to thank our guest, Tomas Lopez, who is the current but soon to be outgoing director of Democracy North Carolina. We want to wish him well. We want to thank him for always being such a wonderful guest of the Legal Eagle Review. And we wish him the best of luck. We know he will continue to do great things wherever it is that he lands. We'd also like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any comments or questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. If you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.